should do a whole episode with us communicating to each other on a text thread <laughs> for, and not have any verbal accompaniment. This, this show is going to get very avant-garde. After watching Roma, I feel inspired <laughs> to attempt a more artistic podcasting approach than perhaps has been tried before. <laughs> I, it's made us both better people just yes. watching the movie, uh, which I guess we're sort of tipping our hand. Well, let's not tip our hand. Why don't you kick things off, Chris, in your inimical or inimitable, let me say. Inimical, I think, is the is the word is that, that the I used before that has a negative connotation, <laughs> yeah. right? I think you're right. I think Don't you're take right. that personally. No, no, no. What have you got for a say? No, I should say a little bit peek behind the curtain, people. We're taping this the day after we've taped a previous episode. And as you know, Chris has become somewhat famous for his creative and stylized intros, which are different each week. Bespoke I, a, be, a bespoke intro. And I, I am curious to know, can the guy repeat within 24 hours? Can he come up with another whole one? So this is going to be a really big test. Let's see what you got, Chris. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Full Cast and Crew. Full Cast and Crew is more than a podcast. It's a way of seeing both the cinema and the world characterized by a holistic sensitivity that goes below the surface and below the line into an unconscious realm governed by strange coincidences and unlikely connections where trivia is the coin of the realm exchanged in the marketplace of ideas for the purpose of trading wisdom, mind from subjective perceptions, and with jokes. Pretty good. Pretty. <laughs> hey, it was a quick turnaround. I mean, my only my only criticism is it's it combines elements of previously used yes. verbiage. So, I mean, look, I'm going to be honest with you. It's, it's Which great. I, appreciate I, I like it. It's great. I mean, it is. It is. You've had very little time to come up with a whole other new approach. But I would. I wouldn't be the honest person that I am if I didn't say yeah, recycled a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A little, well, a little bit. Of rec- a little bit. I did, bit, I, recycle, I did try to stay away from verbs that have things like swimming because I wanted to go, you know, think of it in like an mm. unconscious dream realm. But then that that was too much like the uh, sure. diving under the ocean. But you're right. No, you're look, right. it's great. Don't don't let me be the guy that rains on your parade. <laughs> yeah, I can I can rain on my own parade. <laughs> uh, I'm Jason. And I'm Chris. We're your co-hosts of Full Cast and Crew. Um, well, we're here today to discuss Roma which is a 2018 film written and directed by Mexican filmmaker Alfonso Cuaron. My pronunciations are going to be horrible. Yeah, let's... <laughs> Cuaron also produced, co-edited, and photographed the film himself. It stars Jalitza Aparicio, Marina Di Tavira, Marco Graf, Daniela de Mesa, Enoch Liano, and Daniel Valtiera. And I don't know why I didn't make you pronunciate pronunciate the cast. <laughs> Set in the early 1970s, the film is a semi-autobiographical take on Cuaron's upbringing in the Roma district of Mexico City, and it follows the life of a live-in housekeeper named Cleo, uh, who is working for a middle-class family. And I think after we talk about our personal and emotional reactions to the film, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the not necessarily technical aspects of the movie, but some of the things that I think are interesting about how the film was released, where you can see it, and what the implications for that sort of thing are going forward. But um, Chris, why don't you start us off? You know, I think right off the bat, I'm just going to stay a little bit uh, broad and say that I loved it. The best thing about it was how sumptuous... Forgive me. No one should ever use that adjective. Uh, It was beautiful. It was so beautiful to look at. And it was a real pleasure to just be immersed in the world. Uh, On top of that, I thought it was a beautiful story told in a way that I found surprising and touching. And uh, yeah, loved it. Inaritu, you're familiar with him. Yeah, heard of him. Um, He says that it's not only the greatest Mexican film of all time. (laughs) 
Wow. But that it's among the greatest films ever made. And I wholeheartedly agree with him. Certainly on the the latter, I'm not expert enough to comment on the former. Yeah. But I'm going to just jump out on the limb and say that I believe this is one of the greatest films ever made. And I think that it will be studied for decades to come is both a work of art of the highest order in the medium mm-hmm. and also a completely accessible experience for anyone from any walk of life. You know, sometimes films that we love or that are brilliant occupy such a rarefied space and require so much knowledge in order to experience and enjoy them. What reference is it making? Mm-hmm. Or this is almost like a Frederick Wiseman documentary. It's It's almost like a fly on the wall approach, which I think one of the things I'm most impressed about by the film is just how accessible it is. I was just blown away by this movie. I loved it. I I can't wait to see it again. I absolutely think it is one of the greatest films ever made. Wow. Wow. That is- uh, <laughs> Which I know is a crazy thing to say. Well, I, and I don't say it lightly, and I wouldn't say it lightly. I was say, I'm sure you don't. It's always such an intimidating thing to hear, though, about something that is yeah, new. I get it. Because like you said, when I something know. is- you ass- Or at least I do, I assume the canon is- unchangeable and that all the best stuff was done before you were, before one was born. Look, I'm it's not certainly argue it. the, the greatest film of 2018 that I've yet seen. There's a mm-hmm. bunch of others we're about to see as we go through award season. Yeah. We'll see what you think of Ralph Breaks the Internet. It's hard to remember an experience like the one I had watching this movie and the depth of emotion that it caused me to feel, which was beyond crying in a movie or beyond being exposed to a sad scene in a movie. Yeah. That's why I think this the movie ultimately is such a powerful work of art and such a incredible statement about humanity and connection and love and family and children and memory. I can and will go on and on and on about it, but um, I was blown away by it. Even just watching the trailer and seeing some of the scenes, it it, it made me realize I had that feeling like, Wow, I really want to watch that scene again and kind of jump into it. Yeah, let's let's play the let's play the trailer, which is um, wordless in an interesting way. So for people listening at home, it's probably an odd trailer experience for you, but it is somehow. But surrender yourself to it. Surrender yourself to it. um, If I can figure out how to play it.
Unbelievable. Yeah. Incredible. I was not in the mood to watch a two hour and 14 minute movie last night. We just, <laughs> we had just taped a podcast prior to that and had watched a movie for that. It was Thursday night. I, w- I was not in like I optimal frame of mind right. to sit down and not only watch a movie, but watch a movie that at first blush seemed to take the effort that this was going to take. Black and white, Black and subtitles, black. subtitles. Two, over two hours. Not only subtitles, but as I was looking at the thing, <laughs> there are multiple languages in the subtitles because it's obviously in Spanish, but then the characters of Cleo and her friend, uh, speak in an indigenous dialect. So that's also subtitled, but with like brackets. brackets around it to separate it from the Spanish and the subtitles. So I actually had a reaction when seeing it in the movie theater and <laughs> that came up. I was like, oh no. Like also yes. I ended up having to see it at 10 o'clock or so, but I was like, you know, I'm ready for a certain amount of reading, but to keep two, th- two tracks going might be too much. Might be but, too much. But was not. It's, it's. Well, can I ask just because yes. I'm, I'm, so glad and so fascinated by, by the strength of your reaction. But do you know, was there a time, was there a moment those things started to click? Was it the the beauty at the very beginning? Or was there a time where all of the th- the things started to fall into place for you? It's a good question. You know, I think my experience of watching the movie was one where, no, I think an hour in, an hour and 15 minutes in, an hour and 30 minutes in, I was not profoundly moved or blown away but it's such a testament to the way the film is made that I think the film withholds an incredibly powerful emotional moment until almost the very end, mm-hmm. which is the scene at the ocean. Mm-hmm. The, the way that's been sort of withheld from you, the, the, the raw expression of love and emotion that comes pouring out of this family after... Um, Cleo has saved two of the children from a near drowning in the way that in life, uh, either a life-threatening moment or, or abject fear or something profound can, can tear down the barriers that we put up between ourselves and other people in our own lives. I thought the way that that was held back until that part of the film the first scene that I was blown away by mm-hmm. was the hospital scene. You know, that that scene was uh, so in, in, so brilliant in a different way. But the culmination of the whole film, the culmination of everything that we had seen, the year in the life of this family, in that beach moment, and specifically when the mother character tells Cleo, we love you, Cleo, we love you so much. I'm getting choked up thinking about it. Yeah. Um, it just was so incredible. And um, that that was when, I don't think an experience that I've really had in a movie before where you have to, this is going to sound so dumb and obvious, you have to see the whole movie in order to <laughs> have the experience of, of that the movie intends you to have. Yeah. Which is obvious, but for some reason, so profound with this movie. It's so easy to, especially when talking about film and chin stroking about it to take things out of context or think of like, oh, this scene was masterful or this performance was masterful. In some ways, this is a wonderful example of what auteur-driven cinema can be in the sense that here's somebody with a very personal story writing, sort of writing it, directing it, bringing everything, like you said, pacing the story in such a way to get to that moment. Everything is leading to that. The beach scene that you're talking about, you know, that image is on the poster, and it's a beautiful image and it's fine. 
And yet I now look at that same image on the poster and have a very different reaction to it. Totally. Because of this two hours and 14 minutes of context that lead up to it. So now it will have this meaning to me for forever, for every time I see it. I think that you just hit the nail on the head in terms of something that's so profound to me about the movie in another way and about life is what the movie gets right is that we can be, we can see something every day. You can see the image on that movie poster. You can see the face of this this nanny uh, that works with this family, each other, husbands and wives, children, yeah. parents. Um, yet there's so much more going on that than we can say or articulate. The poster is such a great example of that. The image itself, the sight, the the, the visual memory of something can only go so far. And right. I think one of the interesting things about listening to Quaron talk about why he wanted to make this movie, how he made this movie, what his experience was like making the movie, is about putting on the screen incredibly profound memories and moments from his childhood. Um, and he said somewhere, it's it's about uh, figuring out who you are based on who you were. Hmm. That's you know, and and I think the way the camera moves in this movie is such a brilliant and fascinating part of how the story is told and how we as viewers watch the story unfold. He described it, I think, as like a ghost in the room watching memories unfold, which yeah. is a very poetic and operatic way of kind of saying that the camera is always really at a remove. There are really no pushes into people's faces. Everything is much like that final scene on the beach, which which yeah. is just the camera simply moving left and then moving all the way back again. And it's a lot of long takes long allowing takes. the action to sort of to unfold, yeah. allowing the action to unfold. It's it's not just saying like here's the important point, here's yeah. the important. It's not closing it either in a story way or or physically. Have you seen a lot of his um of Quaron's? Yeah. I mean, I've seen it, the big ones and I actually not to sound You auditioned for the part of Cleo? Oh, if only. If only. <laughs> I was one of the I was 3001. Um, no, I actually saw his first feature, which was translated in English to Love in the Time of Hysteria. Uh, at the time, it was 1992 at the Chicago Film Festival. I had just arrived in Chicago to go to school and was like, I'm in This is city. not the princess movie? Is this a little princess? Or the- this is a Mexican film he had okay. made before that, which okay. was sort of like a, a sex com okay. about a guy who is told he had AIDS. Frank, by hilarious. Like a, well, <laughs> he's a cad and he's sleeping with a lot of women uh-huh. and one woman to get revenge kind of, okay. I think she's a nurse or something. And so this causes him to change his life. I didn't put it together until sort of reading this, that that was actually Alfonso Cuaron's <laughs> uh, first movie. But what I was going to say is I actually don't have um, a strong sense of his style. I've loved the movies that I've seen, but in reading about it, people were saying that long takes are, are very much his, his thing. And I thought it was just used to such great effect here, mm-hmm. especially for something that is not just a memory piece, but a memory piece through someone that he obviously has such profound affection for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed like to me just sort of the perfect way to tell this kind of of story. And also so selfless in a way to tell your own story of your own memories through the lens of another person who was peripheral to your own story, even as she was central. So like yeah. in his telling, the the real life nanny that worked with his family, the the closeness, the love that is so, so well delineated between Cleo and the children 
which as a parent, the effortless, wordless way he captures the ease and the love, the physicality that the children have, the way they just fall into her or nestle into her comfortably, the way she rubs their backs or jokes with them or plays their games. Um, it's such an interesting way to do it and also such a selfless way to do it in a way. You think yeah. of like someone who has all the tools at their disposal to make whatever movie they want to make and I'm going to make a movie about my life. It's both the most self-centered thing to do and yet the manner in which he pulled it off, he's not sent, his character isn't central to the movie at all. Yeah. And in a way that I can't think of another movie like this, almost everyone other than Cleo, I don't want to say they're not like well-defined characters, but it's almost not important that they be well-defined characters. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the strangest film in the sense that in addition to like, there's no movie stars in it. There's no, there's very few even trained actors in the movie. I think the the mother uh, of the family, excellent. it was excellent. Is is one of the few she she said in an interview like she I was the only actress on the set. Everyone else yeah. is is not a professional. So in a fascinating way, even the people themselves are somewhat not central to the experience of the film or the memories that he's putting forth. Yeah, um, and. And obviously through Cleo, we, you have this profound, at least I had a profound emotional experience with her and her inherent intelligence and her inherent awareness of everything that was going on in the house and her deft handling of complicated, layered situations when she's being treated like a servant when she's being yelled at. The character of Cleo is defined by the navigation of that difficult thing of being sort of part of the family and mm -hmm. sort of a servant. And the genuineness of her love for the children and mm -hmm. for the family, and yet at the same time knowing that she is not really part of it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I thought that to go back to the, the beach scene at the yeah. end of her um, – you know, spoiler with all of this, uh, we know that she can't swim and she is at a situation where, and you don't quite understand at first how grave the threat is because, you know, you, she's looking back at the ocean to see like, I don't know, are the kids out too far or not? And it only gradually builds until the point that she is walking into the, the water and going deep enough that, you know, as somebody who can't swim, that it's probably quite scary. There is no choice that is made there. That, and I think that there's something beautiful and something interesting in, in that, that she, there's no question of, oh my gosh, I'm going to risk it. Should I do it? This is so part of her character, this uh, love for the children. That was, that almost becomes such a perfect metaphor, and which is probably why he did it, for literally her whole journey throughout the film. Yeah. And I think um, it's amazing also to think that she, there's a scene where the family is watching a television series. And I thought his use of the television shows and the movies was so spot on. Yeah. I really want to see um, the bizarro Mexican superhero movie, uh, The Incredible Professor Zovek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so into that, Chris. That's a superhero movie that I can get behind. You know, I give a lot of guff to the Marvel franchise sometimes. However, I am all in on The yeah. Incredible Professor Zovek. Well, I don't know. Did you read about him? Yes, uh, I did, Chris. Did you read about his death? Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, his death, I read it in- Talk about giving your all for the craft. Yeah. <laughs> but his story, you know, he had, 
I, he had polio and he learned to walk. I think an uncle, I think, taught him. Shout out to uncles. Uh, and, and then dedicated his life to physical fitness. And then did all these sort of crazy stunts just to show, like, look what the body can do. And then dies very sadly doing that. I happen to have a little fight scene from the incredible Professor Zovek queued up. Jacked. That's like 1972 jacked. <laughs> Again, it's hard to do. You got to do the work. You got to do the work. I mean, tell me you don't want to watch the entirety of this movie, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. This. So next week, everybody get ready for the incredible, incredible Professor Jovet. I have not found it available anywhere. Um, so I'm going right, to need well, you to go down to Mexico. Is coming. And, uh, <laughs> so anyway, that's a little of that. Full cast and crew is brought to you by the award-winning comedy series Philly Court. It's like a fake Judge Judy, but if way more of the cases involved Percocet and illegal fireworks. Philly Court Season 2, premiering now on Facebook. Just like and follow Chuckler Comedy on Facebook for the latest episodes. Philly Court did not actually win any awards, my dude, but the guys in Vinny's called it awesome, except for Brian Welsh, who's a fucking dumbass anyways, and I'm going to beat his ass for stealing my twisted tees. Yeah, but just, um, I think, that, so the scene I was referencing is the, there's a, where the father finally kind of comes back, or, no, he's it's in the beginning of the movie where he's just been away at work or on a small business trip, and the family is kind of reunited, and the children are so happy to see him, and the family is all gathered around a television set, and they're watching a comedy on, on TV, and already by that time in my mind, watching Cleo's day, I've just been like, my God, she does not have one moment from the crack of dawn to the end of the day where she's not serving and taking care of this family. And she finally sits down and just has a moment, like five seconds of watching a scene. And one of the children, you know, puts his or her arm around Cleo. And it's this beautiful kind of moment where she is a part of the family. And right at that moment, the mother says, you know, "Uh, Cleo, could you get my, could you get the doctor a cup of tea (laughs) just to get up and go to the kitchen and prepare the tea and bring it in? And it's, it's that separation. And I think you know, in terms of what the movie is about, you have, you obviously have class and you have, you have race in the sense of the indigenous peoples represented by Cleo and, and not an upper middle class family in the family, but like a middle, a solidly middle class family, it feels like, which I think is, which is more interesting in a way than if it was an upper middle class family Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, just um, maybe being the product of a middle class family myself that felt so finally wrought in the way that he, that he told it. But, um, Quaron said that, you know, in Mexico at the time for, for Cleo, for his, his nanny's character to be indigenous, um, to be poor and to be a woman was like a triple whammy in society. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was so, so beautifully and, effortlessly unfolded through the course of the movie and and her and and also not in a insulting way not, no, not in a way that like wreathed her in holier than thou dignity nor did it make too much of the difficulty and suffering right. like I, one of the things i uh, close to the beginning of the movie when she and i'm sort of blanking on the name of her friend um when they're up in their room and they're doing like exercises yes. together and sort of like the fun that they're having two, or, and even before the two, two young girls were both servants. Yes. But also 
have their own lives and when they're talking totally. like gossiping about dating and then doing their little exercises and sort of like there's the fun and the joy that they found and and had their own lives outside of the socioeconomic uh, and political difficulties that they were part of. Yeah. It's a good kind of reminder, especially in the troubled times that we live in, there are still things that give life joy and meaning. And Quaran has talked about how in casting the movie, it was so important to him, not only that the actors, let's just use the term actors, even yeah. though many of the people we're referring to aren't actually actors, but that the people that were going to portray these real life people, not only was it important to him that they physically resemble the real life people, mm-hmm. but it was also important to him that they contained their essence, that they reminded him of them in some way. So he talked a lot about the casting process, particularly for Cleo, where he would find an actor who perhaps resembled but did not have the essence. Mm-hmm. Or he would find an actor who ha- actor who had the essence but did not resemble. And that led to uh, a nationwide search in Mexico where he describes having casting directors literally combing through small villages. And, and they found uh, Jalitza uh, in Oaxaca, which is the region that his childhood nanny was actually from. Yeah. And the, the character that you're referring to, I think, is play, is Adela, mm-hmm. who's played by Nancy Garcia Garcia. And she's Jalitza's real-life best friend. Oh, really? So when he found Jalitza, um, and he knew that he needed this other character who was going to be in scenes with her and the scenes that you're talking about and that effortless communication that she has with her real yeah. friend, he asked her, like, who's your best friend? Well, Nancy is. Yeah. Oh, well, do you think Nancy would be interested in being in the movie as well? And that's why they have that kind of chemistry, I yeah. think. Oh, wow. Regarding the casting, just the funny thing about it, I, I was reading a little bit about the logistical nightmare it supposedly was mm. for many, many reasons. But uh, so to try to uh, alleviate some of that, they didn't say that it was uh, Quaron who was doing, Correct. The, doing the movie. And when they he did finally uh, meet her, meet Elitza, she, she said, she actually is like, I, I don't know his work. Yeah. I've heard of Guillermo del Toro. I like his movies. One of the interesting things to contemplate here is I think there's an, a very good chance that she's going to be nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. Um, there's equally as great a chance that she could win. Yeah. Yes. And for someone who was not and not trying to be an actor, um, I believe she wanted and still wants to be a school teacher. And mm-hmm. that's what she was going to school for when she was found to be in this movie, he has a great story about finally offering her the part. And when he explained to her what would be required if she said yes to this opportunity, she she said, I guess in Mexico, the job offers that would be presented to her upon finishing her schooling come out at a specific time from the government. And she said, well, it's gonna be eight months before the job offers come from the government. And he, he said, he loved her that her response to the job offer was, okay, I guess I have nothing better to do for eight months. <laughs> That's what she decided to do. In a way, I feel sort of like, God, it's going to be so strange. It probably already is strange for her to have been plucked from this existence. And now you you can be in the middle of this machinery, yeah. you know, which is not a great machinery to be in the middle of. I mean, hopefully... She can navigate it and use it to her advantage, and I don't. I don't right. know that she wants best from it. Yeah, I don't know that she wants to be an actor or right. not. Um, I. It would be. Can you think of anyone else who might have won actually a best actor or actress Academy Award who then 
either never acted again <laughs> or didn't want to. It would be amazing yeah. as a story if that were to occur. Um, yeah, just a one-off. Just a just one-off. One- <laughs> You'd be like, I did, you know, yeah, I acted once. Oh, how did it go? Well, I won the Academy Award. Yeah, and well, then I just, you know, put it on the shelf. And you know what? I would have so much respect for anyone who did that. That would be the ultimate, like, the, the life of the school teacher would be so much more rewarding than the life of the movie star. Yeah. So, yeah, the casting, the children were so natural. I mean, you know, you've heard me talk over the weeks of the podcast. I've been on a naturalistic bent. So, in a way, this movie is like my manna from heaven. I mean, if you like naturalistic movies and acting, you're going to dig Roma. And, you know, and as we were saying before, I didn't ex- didn't know that that's necessarily what it was going to be. Oh, I, yeah. You know, because I what it's little what I knew about of. it going in was that, that it had to do with some some this time of political unrest and that it was a memory film and that it was a very personal film. All of those and the fact that it was black and white subtitles. Yeah. Uh, all the alarm over, bells are going off. But oh, you know, I have to be, I love all those things, but it made me think that it was going to be something more overtly sort of artsy or um you know, cigarette smoking, chin stroking, yes, like that kind of artsy stuff. When I started watching it, it did make me think a lot of uh, Fellini, partially because it's in black and white, partially, again, you know, it's thinking like eight and a half, these sort of reminisc- reminiscences from, from certain sort of artsy filmmakers. I think when the movie clicked in for me was when I realized that it was something else than that, mm. which was, you know, pretty, pretty sort of pretty early that I was like, oh, these aren't symbols. These are, these Mm -hmm. aren't these weird images, like the band coming down the street toward them was not, and playing what sounded kind of off key to me, Mm -hmm. uh, but was not just sort of like a strange arbitrary image. Like, no, 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 this was the time that they were living in. And this is the, the sort of impending threat kind of of the militarism that seemed to be in Mm. the background, as well as, you know, if we get a little bit more into some of the themes, uh, sort of to use a, a a contemporary term, sort of toxic masculinity. I think the men in in this <laughs> film are to the extent that they're in it. To the extent that they're in it. Disappeared, are, abandoned. But as I said, where they're negative in the sense <laughs> that they, yeah, they go. <laughs> if I mean, they stuck God. around, who yeah. knows what um it changed what I thought I was going to see. And and I was very happy to give into the, like you said, to the naturalism of it, to the unforcedness of it. And um yeah. It was one of the first beautiful. great scenes for me was when the father finally returns because we've seen a good amount of the family life with the father sort of leaving and going to work. Or I think there's a, I think there's an initial short trip before he finally basically abandons the family, but he returns from that short trip. And when he returns, there is a masterful scene. Again, this is like, there's so many scenes that I just want to watch again to watch how they're constructed because yes, there's a simplicity in the filmmaking in a certain way, but there's also such complexity in the way yeah. the emotional information is unfolded to us. And when the father returns, it's this car, this car <laughs> is, is there's the cigarettes and the radio and the image from inside the car and the meticulousness with which he, he has a car that's too big for his carport. Right. Which I, which I heard Quaron tell Inaritu in, we, we should really get sponsored by this DGA podcast because <laughs> I listen to it all the time in relation to oh, preparing for I, this. I didn't listen to the. Oh, um, right it's really useful for that. So yeah. I'm going to give that a shout out again. And if you're interested in this movie, you should definitely listen to that conversation. He takes greater care with the car than he does with his own children and family. Yeah. And God, that's such an amazing scene when he comes in and then uh, he describes it as it's a penetration almost. You know, it's this 
he's driving this thing into the home, into the family, and really destroying it. Yeah. Um, even though he takes great care not to scrape the car. And then, of course, the mother later on in sort of one of her worst moments cannot park the car in the carport and and <laughs> scrapes the side yeah. and 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 destroy damages part of the building. So well that that car scene I was reading a little bit and I someone was saying it's sort of like the the king in his castle. Mm. That the car itself was like the crown and the way that that he, like I said, took care of it and it became almost like a symbol of office and a symbol of him being here. And actually the introduction of him, uh it was a pretty interesting and probably the one of the more artsy, you know, self-consciously artsy elements of the film, you know, you see, you hear them say like, daddy's home, you see the car coming in, mm-hmm. you see the close-up of his cigarette in his hand, adjusting the radio, all of these things that seem to me like such a fantastic way to show a child's perception of somebody that is very remote from them. And they, they only sort of remember in snatches and snatches of action that this person took that defined them more so than the person themselves. Absolutely. Uh, for for the child, and I thought that was a, a great a great way to start it. And like I said, it became sort of a running commentary, or that's a, a running way of tracking the descent of the family. <laughs> like, yeah. I my favorite part with the mother was <laughs> this is toward the beginning of the film. I think before we're certain that he's not coming back, and she's driving the car. I think to take. Uh, to take her to the hospital and they're going to go between two trucks. And you could see her. She's like, I think I can make it. I think I can make it. And she's she doing drives. something with her finger, which is, is she, what is she doing with her finger in that scene? She's like pointing at things that she wants to get out of her way. I see, I got the impression that she was like, you know, like math lady. Or like math lady. Like I can get like, the car there. I got this. I got this. And uh, she, she ain't got this. <laughs> God, so good. She was so, so great. She really, she was great. Um, especially because, um, she had to, it is such a complicated relationship that we uh, obviously three see through Elitza's eyes, but then to see the people around. One of the things that I, that I loved about this film so much is, and because he, he tells his memory story, his autobiography through this other woman that was so profound to him. He also, I think, acknowledges the imperfections in himself and in his family. We don't know for sure which of the children is him, though I, think it's probably um the youngest boy mm. who keeps talking about having dreams of having of being older he foreshadows a lot of things in the movie doesn't he and also yeah and it also you know especially because he ends up the very act of making this movie is sort of going back in time in a way that i think you know plugs into that character mm-hmm. but whatever it is the family th- this is one of those things both the children and the mother are so sympathetic in a in a very real way, because all of them are jerks at times. All of them make mistakes, do things that they shouldn't do or are ashamed of and come across badly, especially when seen through her eyes. And yet Elitza's uh, sort of patience and love seems that much, is is put that much more in relief by seeing the imperfections of the family. And particularly the mother, uh, you know, she has to be somewhat hysterical and unfair at moments, very loving in others. And that's that can be a hard lift. And I, th- and I, I just can't say enough about her performance as well. I think not only is it a hard lift, it's also, um, it's so true to life. Like yeah. we all have bad moments. We all uh, erupt in anger or say things we don't mean. And I think, I thought the mother was such a great and compelling character as a result of that. I thought he, yeah. he allowed the discomfort to exist for a while where you're not certain, is this woman together? Is she capable of keeping this family together? Yeah. 
And he allows that to, to be for so long in the film that another incredible scene I can't wait to watch again is in the seafood restaurant when they finally go to the seashore. Like when Jalitza saves the children from the ocean and there's this incredible emotional release where the mother tells Cleo how much the family loves her. And Cleo admits something about her pregnancy that is so also profound in the same way that that near-death experience resulted in these incredible confessions, I think similarly and so true to life and to childhood, the great day they had at the beach before that mm-hmm. suffuses that dinner with the mother really being in control of a very difficult conversation where she's explaining to her children yeah. for the first time that daddy's left the family. You know, yeah. He wants to see you, he just doesn't know when. And she doesn't trash him, even though he yeah. deserves it. And in watching it, I, I had such relief that she was in control. Yeah. Um, but she lets that moment happen. She doesn't try to stage manage or control it. Yeah. So often people think that uh, for a character to be relatable or likable, they have to be perfect all the time. There has to be no sort of real threat. And the fact that he allowed the people to have their imperfections, including even Elitsa, you know, the confession uh, regarding her her child, it makes her a much, much more whole person the swell of love and and admiration that we feel for her to my mind is is the stronger for seeing something and again you know I don't want to make a moral judgment as to, to uh, about it but to understand that there was something that is more complicated there's a moral gray area to her feelings and the fact that neither does she well I guess she runs from it in the sense that she doesn't admit it until that but you know ultimately in the film she does accept it and that the filmmaker allows that to be there well, she's under the goes, weight of it clearly yeah and so, right, yeah. she becomes released. And the fact that that's part of her character that makes her such a such a wonderful character. Outside of the film itself, when you read about it and listen to Quaron talking about it, in a loftier way, it's, it's about art. It's about risk for himself as a filmmaker. Here's a guy who, in his last film, won uh, Best Director, Best Picture, right. and could do whatever he wanted and chose to do this. Yeah. He originally planned to do it basically the way he would do any of his other films, where he would work with the same cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki. Yeah, I think that that sounds right. And then that ended up not being possible. And so he ended up shooting the film himself. I find that so profound because the thing that he made, and Inaritu says this in their conversation too, he's like, well, I feel bad for Emmanuel because- you know, obviously you're going to shoot all your own movies from now on. I mean, my God, like what you accomplished. Like, But in a way, it's also, I think, so instructive that things did not unfold in the production the way he thought they would, the way yeah. he thought they should. Things happened, which then forced him to trust himself and trust that when you hear him talk about it, he didn't really always know what he was doing through yeah. the filming of the film. He was just going on, I trust that this is going to work. That's all easy to say after the fact. Sure. <laughs> you know, but like when you're there and you're shooting a two and a half hour epic on black and white without traditional story structure and without professional actors by and large, and on a scale that's both profoundly human and intimate and tiny, and also the history of an entire country. Right. <laughs> that right. Is, that inter intersects and interweaves with the lives of the people that we've come to know in another masterful, incredible scene in the crib store where the student uprising unfolds. 
that camera work in that scene to me was so powerful. The same type of camera movement for the entire film that we've seen is this slow pan, this slow kind of tracking shots that that reveal the information going outside another window, or outside the window is where this, this student uprising is happening. And on our side of the, the camera, the, the people that we've come to know, Cleo is there with the grandmother and the family, and they're buying a crib for her as yet unborn child. And the political intersects with the personal in the most personal of ways, and yeah. that the father of her child is one of the people who's chasing a guy through the store. And and um, he has a gun, and he's pointing a gun at her and is looking at her. And it's kind of the only moment in the movie where he has some sense of what he's done in mm-hmm. impregnating and leaving her. And this comes after a very ugly scene oh, where God. she had uh, yeah. confronted him oh. after he had disappeared. The martial uh, arts camp, yeah. scene, which is so weird. Yeah. And, and um, Because it's such a, a surreal image so surreal. to see that many people yeah. sort of doing something like that and to see it in the trailer or something like that. Again, it, it seems like a strange image, a Fellini-esque thing, but in this context makes perfect sense and then has a, a sort of added critique of toxic masculinity and the, the overlap between kind of masculinity and, frankly, and fascism, which plays out sure. with Fermine. Um, that scene where he, where he she confronts him and says like look you impregnated me he just refuses to believe it and, and threatens I, her with violence and threatens her with violence but I think the the thing about I'm not even going to I'm not going to say are mm-hmm. you sure I'm not going to question it's there's a mindset that he has which is one where he wants to play with the guys and play his martial arts and take himself real seriously that will not allow the responsibility for his actions to enter into it. Uh, and then, like you said, and, and his reaction to protect that sort of hermetic bubble that he's made around himself is to threaten her with violence, which violence, which a couple scenes later comes to pass. And another yeah. incredible thing, I'm pretty sure there's not one spot of score or music other than something that might be playing on a radio or a television set in the entire film. I don't think there's any, right? I don't think there's any musical score. There are certainly no swelling emotional cues yes. telling you how to feel. Yes. And I think that's another really commendable and amazing part. And in scenes that have tremendous emotional impact, the ocean scene, the the emotional power of it without all the strings being tugged behind the scenes is all the more amazing to me that the movie is really stripped of so many of the things that people rely on. He left whatever bag of tricks a director of his experience could have brought to bear. Yeah, A lot of people have, have compared the final ocean scene to the final sequence in the 400 blows, Mm -hmm. you know, where the boy slips away from the camp and has the long running scene to the ocean, which he's always wanted to see. And it is very similar. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it must be a reference for, for Quaron, who I I wonder if he's a Truffaut head. Um, One of my favorite films about childhood is a Truffaut film called Small Change, but it's a story of a small town in France and the children that live there. But uh-huh. it's told very much from the perspective of the children themselves. And it doesn't have a lot of, like, adults uh, hand-holding storytelling. Right. It's different yeah. in that it's 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 very specifically trying to sort of show you something from a child's perspective, which partially, I think, at, at certain points in Roma, I felt like, is the camera always at sort of a child level? 
you know, mm. as it moves and, and surveys scenes, but not really. And I don't think ultimately the camera is not from a place of childhood. The camera is is memory. It's a place yeah. of memory. Oh, so the memory it's is from unfolding. adulthood. It's, it, he's a, it's a presence. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that, he is a presence. Obviously he's a presence behind the camera. I know that. But I really feel in watching the movie, it's almost, he's almost like a character. Yeah. Like his perspective but it's at arm's length. It's mm-hmm. just in how the scenes unfold and it's in whatever intellectual execution there was prior to the filming of the scene. In the scene in the crib shop, it pans over to some windows and outside the window, you see thousands of people actually in the street. And this is actually where this uprising took place. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing about the movie is as much as possible, it was shot in the exact places where these things occurred yeah. in his own life, yeah. which I think is amazing. And they rehearsed that that uprising scene with thousands of people, I think in a football stadium or something, he said, uh-huh. for weeks prior to filming because oh, wow. he knew that once they were there, he couldn't have any problems. You're going to have so much chaos going on. Yeah. That's indication of like how much preparation must have gone on behind the scenes to create this effortless thing that unfolds in what feels like real time. He's not a young director. You know, uh, 400 Blows was Truffaut's like first I think his first first film. film. The fact that Quaron went back and instead of doing this sort of very personal, this is my life sort of semi-autobiographical thing at the beginning of one's career, he is at the yeah. height of his powers. He has all of the experience from having made so much that allows you to have everything look so unrehearsed because there's a confidence in your skill. There was an article that I read about the amount of stuff that is uh, that Gone. is real. One, oh, that's that real, real, yeah. Most of the furniture in the house, he had gone to relatives and stuff, were the real pieces. Uh, the taxidermied dog heads, they weren't the real dog heads. <laughs> but he, that was something from uh, Quaron's memories. Like, that's a real thing that somebody had. At that um, that ranch? Yeah. Oh, that's another whole incredible sequence. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by... Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them as part of Project Behemoth. Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. Well, That is a great segue to a Guillermo Guillermo del Toro quote about Roma that I would like to read to you. He said in a variety piece, all roads lead to Roma, as the saying goes, but the most successful, the most heartening of these roads is the one Alfonso took. After the enormous critical and box office triumph of gravity, Alfonso was in a perfect position to do whatever he wanted. He could have commanded life-setting paydays to helm any or all superhero stories. He could have decided to work with the biggest stars or tackle a blank check epic full of color and bombast. And he chose Roma, a black and white, minute recreation of a Mexico that faded, that disappeared after the massive earthquake in 1985, and the story of an unsung hero in a middle-class family with no great anecdote or particular agency in the large movements of history in Mexico. He chose to make an epic effort to tell an intimate story. He made a conscious effort to tell this story devoid of the trappings of Aristotelian three-act structure, but he did so with what is, to date, his most precise, his most breathtaking use of cinema as a language and a medium. He chose wisely, and to me, this is the confirmation of his spirit, one that he has demonstrated by going back 
and doing Y tu mamba tambien, and will do again in the future. In these are troubled times, he speaks about characters that are invisible and dramas that go unspoken, and thus he provides us with the most urgent of antidotes, empathy. A beautiful take on it, in some ways much more so than, because I kept thinking about Ours? it in terms of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was focusing so much on the elements of memory, but just that simple understanding that it's him trying to understand and feel for, feel with all of the characters. That that amount of empathy is, um, it's a beautiful sentiment. You know, I think that in our troubled times, there are two films that I've seen this year that I think if you want to get back to something human and essential and non-political, this one and Mary Poppins Returns. <sighs> um, <laughs> I was wondering what was the second I was going to say. It's not Creed those, two. those are the uh, two movies that I will honestly say that I needed those two movies this year. I huh. think that they both tap into something. One, I'll let you guess which, taps in more to the spirit of whimsy and magical thinking and feeling good and singing songs and cleaning windows and flying about on balloons. Yes. I'm obviously speaking about Roma. <laughs> the other. No, but honestly, I think both of them are two movies that we need right now. These were two movies, the experience of going and seeing them gave me something that our world is all is all too lacking at the moment. Mm. And I think as far as movies have any importance, um, it's to make us feel something and to to teach us something about something we don't know about. Um and at the risk of sounding like someone standing on the stage at the Academy Awards, if they ever get anyone to stand it, on the stage, happen. Um, that's what this movie reminds me of, of, of the, what the art form can be about. Now, you saw it uh, on a screener at home. Unfortunately. Listen, you know, it's still, uh, I saw it at a movie theater. And uh, because I did, I had heard that one of the, it is beautiful. And to see it on a relative, I went to IFC. It's not a huge screen, but you know, big screen. Sure. And, uh, but an interesting thing was how deliberate he was uh, with sound effects. I don't know enough about uh, sound design, Matt, you tell me. Uh, but in the theater- well, I guess not insult sound design again, Chris. You did <laughs> enough of that in the last <laughs> Oh, last I, did, I did. But uh, there were speakers, I guess, around. Hey, this is Matt, the engineer. So the approach on this was to, to shift the perspective. Normally, if you're watching something visual, you're watching a movie, the dialogue, all the speaking typically comes from the front. With this, the approach was to, as the camera turned, the perspective shifted. So if you're looking at something and there's somebody speaking and the camera shifts and pans left, that person is now out of your right. So it it retains this 360 immersive vibe. And this has been augmented through the use of Dolby Atmos, which normally we have seven speakers, which is three up front, two on the side, and two on the back in cinema. But Dolby Atmos and some of these other immersive formats allow us to have even more speakers, uh, including above us. So with this type of soundscape, it really, really makes it significantly more realistic. He was very deliberate when either people would enter or things that were offset, you know, that I would hear behind me. Uh, and it really did make for such an immersive experience. It is a piece about memory and about the subjective elements of his memory and also seen through this eye of, some, of somebody else who was so profoundly influential to him. And all of those things, to my mind, call for an immersive experience in a way that something that's more plot-driven does not. Well, it's it speaks to one of the interesting things about the film, which is that this is a Netflix release. And apparently, according to Vox, it was 
It was slated to just be released on Netflix. It was going to be in a handful of theaters, I guess, to qualify for the Academy Awards. But the film, once it started being played at all of the film festivals in the fall, got such a rapturous response that I I guess Netflix decided to uh, move that up and put it out on screen some weeks before December 14th. And I think give it a longer 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 thing. And now I think they're expanding it. And it's kind of interesting and weird in a sense. I'm, I'm curious to know why he would have made the decision to put it on Netflix. I mean, look, I watched it at home. It's still a, a profoundly powerful and moving film and an experience. But it's going to be interesting going forward to see how Netflix handles this. In a way, the industry needs people to go to the movies. Yeah, we, we touched on some of these issues when talking about the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Right. It's not an unalloyed good that Netflix has become as big of a producer as, as they are because they have an interest in bringing these things to people's home. And when you are somebody like Alfonso Cuaron, you can say like, no, I want a release. He's a grown-ass man. He can do what he wants. And so whatever deal he went into with them, he went in with all eyes open. And I was reading an interview where he he was conscious that what he was making was not a blockbuster. Studios who have a different set of, I guess, a different business model and different set of priorities would not necessarily allow him to, to operate in the way that he wanted to operate, but Netflix would. Uh, so like you said, you know, maybe he was like, okay, I will sacrifice a certain amount of the theatrical run you know, it'll get some release, but, you know, and uh, sacrifice in order to make the movie that I want to make, better to have it out there than not. But the very fact that Netflix was shut out of uh, Cannes, I think it was the last year, and I think that also went into the negotiation. Um, they want to win awards. They want to win, win the big awards. But it's great that, that they are not, ju- that they are allowing the prestige thing to push them to do things that are not necessarily in their short-term financial interest. Having more of a film release, I think, is better for them in the sense of it's better for film culture. I think people will more easily fall in love and create things that are transcendent in the way that that this film is if there is still this, this outlet. I think whatever they might lose by having a longer theatrical run, I think they sh- they frankly, should be more open to that. Was this a film that Netflix funded entirely from the very beginning, or is it a film that they picked up on the festival circuit for distribution? I think it's the former. Okay. So they they had a deal with him. Yes. We want to fund your next film. You have total artistic carte blanche. We'll four-wall it for a weekend on December 14th to qualify for the Academy Awards. I think they're actually expanding it now. I read something that said it was going to be maybe up on oh, 400 to 600 screens around the world now since it's kind of becoming a thing. Yeah. For Netflix, it's kind of fascinating for them to find themselves in a little bit, to to have a movie that people would clamor to have be playing in more movie screens would be a hilarious problem for Netflix yeah. to be faced with. Yeah. But it sounds like they're doing the right thing and expanding the release so that people who want to can now go see it again. I, I'm not Mr. Netflix, so what do I know? But I think there's a false dichotomy that there seems to have been created. I honestly don't quite understand why they don't allow the theaters why they don't want the theaters to have more space and time because the theaters live and die by that. And I think people who- When you say they, you mean Netflix? Netflix, yeah. Well, Netflix wants to put you out of business if you're a theater. To my mind, that that seems a bit short-sighted. Well, they want it both ways now. But that's, and that's the thing. And I think they should have always looked at it by wanting it both ways. Most people are not going to, if given the choice, they would rather watch at home. That's just the way that it is. Propping theaters up or allowing theaters to survive or, or giving them, you know, all- I think actually creates more excitement around Netflix itself. Myself, for example, I go to see Roma, but I'm also, because the more I see things in the theater like that, it's created a love 
of film and of TV and media stuff that makes me more likely to watch more things well, Chris, in general you, on Netflix. Let me give you a piece of advice. Watch break more up, stuff? Break up with MoviePass and <laughs> get yourself a freaking Netflix account, my friend, because my God, what the hell are you talking about? I think that the awards push will be will be an interesting thing for them to navigate. Um, so, Did you know that actually that the woman that Cleo is uh, based on is is still alive? Yes. And in fact, he his starting point for the whole movie was asking her, is it is this okay? Yeah. Um, and he said he learned so much more about her through making the film than he ever knew about her previous. Yeah. Just can't say enough about it. I mean, I could go on and on. I won't because I'll spare everyone. Save me the trouble Save of cutting it Save you the it trouble all. of cutting it all. Um, yeah, I, I highly recommend everyone see this film. I think however you can see it, movie theater, Netflix. Um, and I don't want to lose sight of, again, what I think is almost the most important thing about the whole film is that sense that anyone could watch this movie. Cleo could watch this movie coming from her impoverished indigenous village and have an experience, recognize herself in it have as deep an artistic experience, as deep a personal experience as some egghead film critic could, yeah. you know? Um, and that's that to me is an incredible accomplishment. And especially when you're a director, he has a part in his interview where he says, someone asked him, you know, were you, were you becoming emotional on set as you saw your life unfold? And he said, no, I, I, you're so consumed with all the million details that you're just trying to stay focused on that you don't even really have time to have an emotional experience on the set all the time. You will be treated to something incredibly rare and profound and special and precious and, but not presented preciously. Yes. Well, that is, that is well put. Thank you, Chris. Um, What else do you have for us today? Rants and raves? Rants and raves. What have you got? Well, my <laughs> my rave is a comic book rave, uh, but I'll keep it. I'll keep it quick. Marvel is releasing something called the Best Defense. There was a team called the Defenders, which was characterized by uh, being a non-team because it was all of these people that didn't get along with each other. And it started out as uh, Silver Surfer, Namor, Doctor Strange, and the Hulk, and they would just kind of find themselves working together. Shocker. Sort of like, we got these lame characters. What can we do with them? Let's put them all together in something. But it was fantastic. That spirit of like mismatched sort of strange people that didn't quite get along usually mm-hmm. went throughout the run. It is the most famous run was uh, written by Steve Gerber, who is a writer who's also known for having created Howard the Duck. And he was a strange counterculture writer mm-hmm. in and of itself. So it was a great strange team that had a long life. and But now they are doing this uh, event, which uh, brings back that original team. And again, is doing it in a way that is very different from normal event comics, which and are sort of big bringing crossovers. it back with the countercultural guy who wrote the original. Well, no, he's he's well dead uh, uh, at this point. They got different writers, but like I said, it's just it's so that's a, not. Oh, you mean bringing back the team? Bringing of the back the team characters. Like, they're highlighting the 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 way that they are not exactly working together. So it's a it's an excellent comic uh, non-event for the best non-team uh, in comics. Way to upsell. I mean, non-event because event comics tend to be pretty crappy. 
Uh, What's an event comic? Something like where where everything that you don't like about the Marvel movies in terms of like everybody is involved and everybody's, it's just sort of too much all at once. Okay. And I keep saying it's a non-event because it's, there is a story going on over these, I think it's six issues, but it's not done in that overstuffed way. Instead, it's focusing on each one of them with a story that's sort of building up in an unconventional way. Well, there you have it, listeners. If you don't want to hear Chris talk about politics, you have to let him talk <laughs> about comic books. What else do you have, Chris? That's well, your rave. What else do you have? Well, gosh, it's it's hard to say because there's a low-hanging fruit. It's either going to be about New York traffic or the fact that KFC has made fried chicken scented fire. You know what? I do not want to give KFC any press for that <laughs> ridiculous attempt to manipulate our interest. I already fell for that once with the PETA thing. I'm not doing That's it right, again no. for the fried chicken scented <laughs> log, which is just stupid. That's the rant I would have given. The only rave I have, I don't have a rant this week. I decided to give it a rest. Um, and I feel so inf- infused with positivity and love for the capacity for closeness with my fellow man and human beings that I, I don't want to put any negativity out into this particular episode. The only um, rave I have is for a cover story uh, in this week's New York Times Magazine by Elizabeth Weil, which is an incredible read. It's it's a profile of a of a kid, really, a twenty something kid who's yeah. been incarcerated for that horrible Oakland warehouse fire that occurred uh, maybe three years ago. I think they said it, it in two thousand sixteen. Yeah. Um, so you remember this is sort of like. Um, a you know counterculture warehouse in Oakland where um, where artists and Burning Man types would uh, come together and tried to build the, the title of the, the article is called He Helped Build an Artist's Utopia Now He Faces Trial for 36 Deaths and it's the story of Max Harris who is currently incarcerated in the Santa Rita Jail. And it's an interesting read because I had an experience where when I first encountered this article, I was immediately judgmental because Max Harris has tattoos on his face and neck and he has those huge earlobe cork earring things. And I thought, oh, Christ, you know, I am- What did this fire festival guy do? Exactly. I'm admittedly jaded about entitled white hippie playground culture- under the guise of mind expansion and how that can go awry. However, what Elizabeth Wilde does really well in this profile is it ends up being a story of um, best intentions, people who lack appropriate boundaries, and who gets left holding the bag when something goes horribly wrong. And at least in the reading of the article, it's not this guy, Max Harris, who should be incarcerated for the terrible tragedy that hurt that occurred in the warehouse. Uh, but it's just a great story of how our justice system kind of can get it wrong. And um, yeah. I, I highly recommend it. It's a little heavy. Sorry. Yeah. Well, well, I'll be yeah. back next week with some hang up about a jewelry commercial. Yeah. You want me to cut out the thing about the KFC? No, no, because I think my, <laughs> my, the vehemence with which I reacted to KFC taking it too far to try and manipulate me should be left in. Yeah, good. All right. Well, uh, unless you have an out for this week. I don't have an out. I didn't say- Hey, Jason. Yes, uh, Chris. Do you have any plans for the weekend? Yeah. What what are you going to be doing? Uh, uh, Is this some kind of setup I'm supposed to do? Yeah, it was going to be a setup. The line I was going to use was the end of the Italian job. Which Italian job? The old one with Michael Caine. 
I mean, I could use the Mark Wahlberg one. I'm sure it ends. Wait, what am I supposed to say in the setup? Actually, I, uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, if I say, what are you going to do this week? And it's like, I don't know. And I'm like, well. Oh, okay. All right, well, let's do it again. Uh, and I'm going to leave all of that setup. in. <laughs> <laughs> Peeking behind the curtain. Yeah. Okay, take two. Um, okay, well, that's it for this week. Um, hey, Jason, do you have any plans for the weekend? What was I supposed to say again? Uh, I was supposed to say, not really. Let me do it. Okay, take three. You say, I don't know. Oh, all right, take three. Uh, well, that's it for this week. So, Jason, uh, what are you doing this weekend? Not really. <laughs> I literally forgot what I was supposed to say. <laughs> Honestly, 100%. That, that, I 100% you forgot. You did great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I, I was really, really just like, oh. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Okay, let's try it again. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. So uh, until next week. Um, hey, Jason, uh, do you have any questions? I don't know. <laughs> Chris, well, ask, Jason. Chris, ask me what the secret to comedy is. Uh, hey, Jason, what's the timing? Secret to- I think we've got plenty. Hang on a minute, lads. I've got a great idea. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at full cast and crew, or find us on Facebook.